the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Praise to the God who reigns above. God had been preparing the children of Israel to enter into the Promised Land, but once they entered and dwelt in the land, They were to continue to love God above all else and do what God had commanded them to do. The Israelites were to be a unique people, different from the surrounding nations. They were to be different in how they treated their neighbors, foreigners, the employees and employers, even their spouse. We began to see how Israel was to deal with their criminals, ensuring that judgment was fair but merciful. We pick up with Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 3. Forty lashes were to be given and no more than that, lest you would look at your brother and see him as vile. The phrase means to treat him like a nobody. No one should be treated like a nobody, not even a criminal. Forty lashes was the worst whipping a man could receive because every human being has dignity. Now that's why even the worst sinner, even the worst sinner shouldn't be screamed at or cursed at or called derogatory names. God created that person. He loves that person. And he came to earth to die for that person, just the same as for you. So no matter what they've done or what they're still doing, that's who they are to God. What they are doing may be disgusting to the Lord, and we don't compromise that. But they are not disgusting to him. I can't think of anything more disgusting than what was done to Jesus on the cross. And yet his words show his heart. What did he say as they were nailing him? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I want to ask you a question this evening. Is that your heart towards those who act wickedly? Or just forgive them? My natural reaction when somebody cuts me off on the roller coaster out there is I, you know, I tend to, you know, they, they get in front of you and you don't want to speed up, you know, or, you know, or if they slow down, whatever, and, you know, you want to get right up on them, you know. That's changed in my heart. When that happens, you know, I ask the Lord, I said, Lord, I don't want to be like that. And the Lord put it on my heart. He said, pray for them. I pray for their safety. I'm like, God, they're driving kind of crazy. Just keep them safe. Please let them arrive at their destination. Lord, I don't know what they're going through. Maybe they had a rough day. Maybe they just got in a fight with their spouse. Maybe they just lost their job. Or maybe they're on the way to the hospital. Or just get them to their destination safely. Protect and protect all the people around them. Don't you think that's a better way to do life? You know, later in Israel's history, they changed the maximum to 39 lashes because they believed that they were to be merciful even in meeting out judgment. Just like the Lord. He's merciful even when he meets out judgment. That's why Paul, when he talks about the whippings he received at the hands of the Jews, he calls it the 40 lashes minus one. Because they would, they would just give you 39 because they wanted to be merciful, even to the worst criminal. 
And we get down to verse four and we see some animals get some love here. Treatment of work animals. You shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn or the grain. The word muzzle means to place a block over the animal's mouth. And the idea is as he's treading out the grain, they had two ways that they would thresh grain. When you take the grain stalk and you wrap it all up, you bring it up to the threshing floor and you would either take these big winnowing fans, you get these guys with these fans and they would whip it up. And what would happen is, is the stalk the part you're not going to eat, would be blown away, the chaff, and you'd be left with the wheat husk, the grain. And then you'd have all that there, and you'd you know, put it in a barrel or a bucket or something, and then you'd be able to use it. They would also, they would have animals, they would put them, attach them to like, like something that went around in a circle. They would trample it with their feet, and doing that, it would then you know, kind of separate it, and you'd pick up the, the solid part, and then you'd, you'd bring that away. So the idea here is don't, don't muzzle that you know, ox as he's treading out the grain. If he wants to grab some corn in the cob, let him. Now, why would a person even think of doing that? Well, they don't want the work animal eating their profits. Greed almost always produces cruelty, or at the very least, it destroys sympathy. Israel was to be generous to those who worked for them, even if it was a beast of burden. Paul uses this scripture twice to tell the church that it's their responsibility to provide for those who teach them the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11, he tells the church at Corinth, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treads out the grain. And Paul suggests here, he goes, does God really love oxen that much? Was he just, you know, going, you need to take care of those oxen? He says, God had a principle here that he had more in mind. Verse 10, or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. It's not that God doesn't love animals. God already says there's not a single animal that dies, a bird that dies without him being there. But he says, for our sakes, no doubt, that is written, so that he that plows should plow in hope, and that he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. So Paul says to them, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it such a great thing if we shall reap your material, your carnal things? He says the same thing in 1 Timothy five seventeen and 18. He says, let the elders that rule well, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, double paycheck, he says, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Why? For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. And the laborer is worthy of his reward, King James says, but just means hire or wages. The idea here, again, isn't that God doesn't care about animals, but he's stressing that we should be generous, not just to those we employ, but also those who serve us spiritually. And so, you know, people ask me often, what should I give to the church? Well, first off, number one, make sure your heart's in a generous place. And then, number two, ask the Lord. And then whatever God tells you to give, you do so faithfully. Now, that's a summary of 2 Corinthians. You can read it on your own time. Next, we get down to chapter 25 of Deuteronomy, verse 5. We see how they're to treat widows. We already saw kind of the welfare system, but now he speaks a little bit specifically to a widow's situation and her specific needs. Deuteronomy 25, 5. He says, now, if brethren dwell together, not in the same house, but in the same area, location, same locale, which would be common since family land was assigned. He said, if brethren dwell together and one of them die and he has no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. So outside the family, she can't get remarried to someone outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife. So not just take her to wife contractually so he can take care of her physically, but he is to treat her like a wife. They're to be intimate and explains why. And perform the duty of a husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears shall succeed, shall stand up in the name of his brother which is dead. He'll count almost like it was his brother was alive again, so that his name be not put out 
of Israel. This is known as something called levirate marriage. And that was a common thing that happened not just in Israel, but in the Middle East. See, a childless widow had two issues in Israel. One, no one, in any culture but that day, but particularly in Israel, number one, no one could take care of her. She couldn't take care of herself. Number two, no heir could carry on the family name and claim her husband's property. She could not do that. Again, while liberate marriage was common in other cultures in the Middle East, Moses made it a responsibility because every family was tied to their assigned land. Land could change hands temporarily, but never permanently. So someone needed to take on the responsibility of number one, caring for her immediate needs, and number two, raising up a child to carry on the family name who would then take care of her needs and then could pass on the assigned land to his descendants, okay? And that's what verse six talks about. The first child from this new union would be reckoned the child of his deceased brother. Any other children that they had from the union would be considered his. Now, as you could imagine, this was a bit awkward. Now, you might be thinking, yeah, no way I'm, I would ever marry my brother-in-law. That's not really where the awkwardness comes from. A woman would not find it to be awkward. And I realize that is far beyond our understanding, okay? A woman would gladly engage in that kind of relationship to provide for her needs and to lose the dishonor of being childless. She would have no problem with that. The person it was awkward for was the man who already had a wife and already had children that he had to take care of. It would be emotionally awkward because, well, do I need to explain? It would be practically awkward. It'd be expending a lot of effort to care for a child that would never bring any benefit to his family. It would all go to those that he would pass it on to. And as you can imagine, some men didn't want to do it. Moses considered this a very dishonorable thing to do, and he gave penalties for such behavior. Verse 7, he says, And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up unto the gate unto the elders, the community leaders, different than judges, but still held in very high esteem. If he doesn't want to do it, she goes to the city elders, and she says, My husband's brother, he refuses to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty, the responsibility of my husband's brother. When that happens, she makes that accusation, verse 8. Then the elders of his city shall call him. They summon him and will speak unto him. And if he stand to it, if he takes a stand and go, I'm not changing. Their job is to try to convince him to do the honorable thing. And if he goes, I'm not doing it, man. I'm not doing it. Well, then, verse 9. Then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of those elders. I mean, this is in the marketplace, gates of the city, where everybody can see. And she will go and take his shoe from off his foot and will spit in his face. Just so you know, the Middle Eastern spit is not like our spit, okay? You're going to hawk a loogie big time, okay? I mean, you're going to really grind it up and get it all that you can in the mouth. You have to realize spitting at someone or on someone publicly is the highest insult you can give in Middle Eastern culture, highest one. And so she would spit in his face and she'll answer and say to him, so shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him that has his shoe loosed. And the idea here is that, you know, she would spit in his face. And what she would be saying to him is, I've got your shoe. Everybody's going to know I've got your shoe. And everybody that knows I've got your shoe, when they see you, they're going to spit at you. And know that you're a dishonorable man. You're going to have this reputation for the rest of your life for what you have done. You might be thinking, what if he wants to preserve his marriage? You know, what if he just wants to stay faithful to his wife? While this situation is awkward, it's a very selfish act on his part because he's basically condemning her to homelessness and his brother's family name to extinction. 
You know, our culture paints a very different image of sex than the Bible does. God certainly intended sex for spiritual, emotional, and physical pleasure, certainly. And I hope that's the case in your marriage. And if it's not, you know, you should probably get counseling because the Lord wants to help you with that. The Bible has a lot to say about that. But sex is not only intended for pleasure spiritually, emotionally, and physically. It's a responsibility that married people have to one another. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, Paul the Apostle tells us this. He says to us, and this is not very politically correct, but it's biblical. He says, let the husband render unto the wife due affection. Benevolence, King James says, but it means due affection. And likewise also, the wife unto her husband. What I explain to married couples, I say to them when they're intimate life is something that isn't occurring or is not something they're working at, I explain, I say, where else do you expect them to biblically fulfill that need? They don't have any other biblical way to fulfill that desire and that need. If you hold out on that or you don't work at that, then where else do you expect them to biblically do so? You are putting them in a place of difficulty. You're in sin. And he goes on to explain, the wife doesn't have authority of her own body. You don't get to go, I've got a headache. Now, husbands, can I just say real quick, wife has a headache. It's not that hard to say, hey, could we have a date night tomorrow? Ladies, you can't have a headache every night. (laughs) But it's the same way. The husband also. Likewise, also the husband does not have power, authority over his own body, but the wife. Same to you. You can't ignore your wife when she needs affection and say, well, honey, when the Gator game's over, I see... I'm going to channel some graves tonight. I see men do some stupid things. I've done it. I did a stupid thing once. I've done many stupid things. Don't do that. Don't do that. You don't belong to yourself. There will be times when lovemaking is a service to your spouse and to the Lord. And that's what it would be in this case. What's interesting is men didn't like being spit on by women. So later on, Israel removed the spitting part. You just simply gave her your shoe as proof of your selfishness. They also changed it where they allowed the responsibility of raising up seed to pass to the next nearest kinsman. You became known as the kinsman redeemer when you did that. That's actually what we see happen in Ruth chapter 4. Ruth doesn't go down and spit on the man who says, I don't want to do that. Boaz gets his shoe as evidence, as proof that he's allowed to be the next kinsman to do it. And then, of course, Boaz marries Ruth and they go happily ever after. So Israel did change that rule so we don't ever see it go into effect in the scripture. All right, verse 11. You can read it on your own time. Verse 13. Verse 11. When men strive together one with another and the wife of the one draws near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smites him and puts forth her hand and takes him by the secrets... Then you shall cut off her hand. Praise God. Your eyes shall not pity her. There's a weird love story somewhere in that scripture where she says, I saved my husband and I lost my hand. What's this about? I mean, was this like a problem in Israel, you know? Was there a situation where like, you know, the women are up there with their signs, you know, get them in the secrets, guys, you know? I mean, that Moses had to address this, you know? There is honor among men. I know what the movies do now where they're always kicking each other in the groin, but there's honor among men, all right? You know, when I, when I, you were young, you just didn't do that. You might get in a tussle with somebody, and if another guy kicked you there, everybody beat you up. I don't know if this was a problem back then. Maybe no honor, I don't know. But when men are quarreling and it comes to the point of physical blows, ladies, you are not allowed to step in and end the fight this way. 
What's the point? In context, the last section of verses, they empowered women in a way that no culture knew back then, right? I mean, no, no women had the rights of this back then to spit in a man's face publicly and to have his shoe as a testimony of what he didn't do, that everyone would dishonor that man, that this woman would be lifted up to that privileged spot. It didn't exist. A woman who spit on a man was sentenced to death in most cultures back then. Moses balances out women's newfound rights with a check. You know, in our culture, it's increasingly the norm to see people's character and reputation destroyed by social media long before the ones legally responsible to do so can determine if they're actually guilty. And while victims were often shamed for coming forward in the past, and sadly some still are, our current mob mentality towards these things has swung this issue in the opposite wrong direction. No victim should feel shame for coming forward with an accusation of wickedness. And every accusation must be taken with absolute seriousness. But no one should be presumed guilty. Empowering either person more than the other in that situation always results in oppression. Always. And God doesn't call us to oppress anyone. Just because one group has been oppressed in the past, it doesn't make it okay to oppress the opposite group in the present. That is not justice. That is wickedness. You say, what does that have to do with this? Moses did not want women to feel empowered to step over boundaries because of their rights. He wants everyone to have rights. Violating someone else's rights has heavy consequences, whether you've been marginalized in the past or not. God is not pleased when to declare that we've been marginalized, we marginalize someone else. God wants us to handle things with dignity and honor, trusting that he is the ultimate judge and he will exalt vengeance. Verses 13 through 16, we get some more verses on how to treat your customers. He says, you shall not have, verse 13, in your bag, different kinds of weights. The word there, different kinds of weights, means a stone and a stone, a big stone and a small stone. You should not have in your house different kinds of measures. The word there means ephahs. It was a measurement used for grain, usually a container. The way they did business back then is Israel didn't have a standard currency. So bartering was based upon an agreed standard, often by weighing product on a scale. So if you said, hey, what are you selling the grain for? And they said, well, hey, man, you know, three stones is what it, what it is you know, three stones for, you know, a pound of grain, whatever. So you put the three stones down and then you'd put the grain on. And then when it equaled out, that would be the price. And you would pay whatever the amount was for that. That's how it worked. Okay. So you couldn't have basically one set of stones for purchases, really big ones, and then really small ones for sales. You know, you had to have an equal way of doing business. You had to have a set standard. Your purchasing power should work the same way you bargain as your selling power. All right. That should be the same way, whether you're using weight or measurement containers, it didn't matter. Everything was to be the same. Verse 15, you shall have a perfect and a just weight, an accurate weight and a fair weight for everybody selling and buying a perfect and a just measure, the same container, no shenanigans that your days, he says, may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God gives to you for all that do such things and all that do unrighteously are an abomination unto the Lord God. We like to pick and choose our abominations today as Christians. Listen, abortion's an abomination. It's an abomination. I will tell you right now, if someone believes that's okay, they should be disqualified from your vote as a Christian, all right? But there are other things that God calls an abomination too. An arrogant look, this, tricking people in business. Those are abominations too. And we need to be very careful as Christians to not ignore one abomination for another. I realize I'm not in the popular category when I make those statements. 
but an arrogant look. You can read it in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. The Bible says, six things the Lord hates, these seven. One of them is murder. One of them is arrogance. One of them is theft. God hates it when people plan to trick others so they come out with a better deal. See, God says, I want to bless you guys, but you need to be honest and forthright to experience that. And so I would tell you tonight, if you are fudging numbers or cheating the system to beat the system, God is not pleased, and he is just as displeased with you as it is when a baby's aborted. Now, you may not like that I said that, but that's what the Bible says. That's not me making that up. Trust him instead. Just as we would tell a mom, trust the Lord, he'll take care of you. Let that baby live. Trust the Lord. I would say to you, trust the Lord with your business. He can take care of you far better than you can take care of you. And if anyone believes that, it should be us. Lastly, he gives him one last reminder here how you should treat the Amalekites. He says, remember what Amalek did to you by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt. This is a reference to Exodus 17 where Amalek attacked Israel. Remember Moses told Joshua to lead people out to fight and Aaron and Hur would hold up Moses' arms and when his arms were up, they'd win and when they're down, they lost. And that, that's what the reference is here. But we don't really find out what Amalek really did until here in Deuteronomy. Moses explains, remember what? verse 18, how he met you by the way, and he smote the hindmost of you. The word hindmost means those in the rear. Well, why were they in the rear? Even all that were feeble behind you. It means all those who were worn out and weak and sick, the stragglers, when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. To take advantage of the weak is to not fear God. Any man that would physically harm his wife or any adult who would abuse a child shows a lack of fear for God. And if you are doing that right now, you need to know that God sees and he will not ignore such behavior. Verse 19, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies round about and the land which the Lord God gives you, when you take care of the Canaanites, he says, you're gonna go out and blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget it. You wipe them out too. You go find them and you wipe them out. Now, of all the situations we read through here, this one seems the most harsh. Is there no chance at redemption for the Amalekites? Listen, like the Canaanites, God had been working on the Amalekites for a long time, but they did not fear him. Any Amalekite who would repent would be forgiven by God and allowed to remain alive, just like God spared some Canaanites who did that. But that didn't happen. And so eventually Israel did wipe them out. But there's a greater story for us tonight. And as I invite the worship team to come up and close us out, I want to share that with you. The Bible paints a picture of Amalek as a type of our flesh, like a picture of our flesh. And for our flesh, there can be no tolerance, there can be no peace, there can be no compromise. The only solution is death. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, it says, if we live at, we're not debtors to the flesh to live after the flesh, for if we live after the flesh, we'll die. Therefore, if we mortify the deeds of our flesh by God's spirit, we will find life. Listen, if you're making compromises with your flesh right now, you will never find victory. There's only one solution for the flesh, and it's death. And what we have to do is we have to say, God, I don't want to do this anymore, and I choose not to. Will you put this thing to death in my life? Put this part of me to death by your spirit. I can't do it on my own. Will you put it to death that I might live? And God's promise is that if we walk in the spirit, what's his promise? we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Amen? That's a great promise, isn't it? Let's live it out. God, we thank you so much for your word here. And, and no, Lord, we, we can't live these things out and bring about a perfect world. We recognize that. We have so far to go ourselves. But Lord, we do want to shine brighter. So help us to treat people correctly, Lord, and help us to treat our flesh correctly, Lord.
We treat others with generosity and mercy and compassion, Lord. We treat our flesh, no mercy, no compassion, no compromise, only death. Lord, even now as there are those who are committing to you to being merciful, to being gracious, committing to you, Lord, to put to death some things to say, Lord, will you put these things to death in my life? I commit to be obedient to you. Lord, would you by your spirit fill them? Would you empower them? Would you change them? That as they walk in you, they would not fulfill the desires of their flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone is important in God's eyes. The most famous Bible verse in the world says God so loved the world. Every soul is a precious image bearer of God. Nothing takes that away, not even the sin of their own choices. God is merciful and just. We ought to be people that deal compassionately and mercifully, even when handing out judgment. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.